All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the August uh, 2020 Major Mondays webinar, pre-answer motion practice in New York. Uh, as, as always, this is a live question and answer webinar, so feel free to shoot me your questions and we'll get to them at the end. So let's start off with when under the CPLR, New York Civil Practice Law and Rules, a response is actually required. Uh, so the trigger here is service of the summons and complaint under CPLR 3012. Uh, there's 20 days to respond if uh, it's personally served in New York, 30 days all other times. Uh, in most cases, uh, an answer is going to be filed in response to the complaint's allegations, but uh, that's not the only permissible response under the CPLR, and that's why we're here today. So let's talk about the 3211 motion to dismiss. Uh, so defendants can file a pre-answer motion to dismiss within the response time under the CPLR. So 20 days if personally served in New York, 30 days all other times. Uh, it does have to be filed in the same time frame as the answer itself. Uh, it's limited to questions of law. Courts are not going to get into disputed facts this early. Um, you know, things that would be developed over the course of discovery. It's not something a judge is going to sit down and address uh, before we've even gotten to the first written demand. Uh, here we're going to be seeking an immediate dismissal versus just reserving our defenses for a later summary judgment motion. Uh, and speaking of which, the evidence submitted in support of the 3211 motion to dismiss uh, has to meet the summary judgment standard, meaning it has to be admissible at trial. So I'm not going to rattle off all 11, uh, all 11 of the ones under CPLR 3211A because we're going to be going into them individually. Um, but I just wanted to touch briefly on some of the grounds outside of 3211 that might also result in dismissal. Um, so failure to serve a complaint demanded under uh, 3012B. Uh, this would be if a summons was served without a complaint and the defendants made a written demand for a complaint and was not produced. Uh, failure to comply with disclosure under CPLR 3126. Forum nonconvenience under CPLR 327. And failure to prosecute under CPLR uh, 3216. So I mentioned earlier uh, in an immediate dismissal versus just raising our affirmative defenses later for a summary judgment motion. Um, the grounds for dismissal can also be listed as affirmative defenses in our answer. Um, but got to be very, very careful here. Uh, a competent attorney knows that all defenses other than lack of subject matter jurisdiction, that's A2 under uh, 3211, failure to state a cause of action and failure to join a necessary party uh, are waived unless raised. So if you're gonna go the route of just raising your defenses and not filing the 3211 uh, with the intent of filing a summary judgment motion later on, anything other than those three golden, uh, golden defenses is gonna be waived if you don't do it in your first response of pleading. Um, so there's a little bit of a cost benefit analysis here, right? Uh, do you wanna tip your hand too much before discovery? What do you think your argument is going to be as to the facts of the case? It's gonna be way easier to prevail after discovery on a summary judgment motion than it is before any facts even come into evidence. Uh, what about posturing with the court? Uh, is this a belligerent judge who doesn't like attorneys that frivolously file 30 to 11 motions? Maybe, uh, you gotta consider the individual relationships and the jurisdiction. Uh, in many cases, as I just mentioned, it is better to actually wait for the motion for summary judgment after discovery, but uh, there are some instances where the 3211 is almost your per se go-to. So what happens when we file the motion to dismiss, other than a dismissal if we prevail? 
uh, it extends the time for the defendant to file an answer. So if you remember the 20 days served in New York, 30 days all other times, that's actually told while resolution of the 3211 is pending. Uh, if the motion itself is denied, the defendants have to serve their answer within 10 days of service of the notice of entry, uh, denying the 3211 motion. Uh, all discovery is also stayed until determination of the motion uh, is reached unless the sole ground for the motion is improper service. Uh, and the plaintiff actually might get a second bite at the apple here. This is another reason why you might wanna do summary judgment later on instead, uh, if the dismissal is without prejudice. And most of the time, believe it or not, it actually is going to be without prejudice because it's very rarely not, it's very rarely going to be on the merits, which means it's not gonna have a race judicata effect later on. <clears throat> So we've been dancing around this topic since the webinar started, but why would a motion for summary judgment be better? As just mentioned, it generally has a race judicata effect uh, as a decision on the merits. Uh, the plaintiff's allegations on a motion for summary judgment need no longer be taken as true. So that's a big one. When you're filing the 3211 early on, uh, any of those allegations in the complaint, no matter how outrageous or outlandish they may seem, are to be taken as true when the court is deciding that motion. And that's a huge leg up for your plaintiff there. Uh, once the defendant makes the prima facie showing, the plaintiff can't rest on that complaint anymore. They have to produce evidence showing that there's a genuine issue of material fact. Uh, and that issue of material fact, if you remember from earlier, that's why many of our 3211 motions fail. If there's an issue of fact out of the gate, a judge isn't gonna get rid of the case. Um, and once again, there's an opportunity to conduct discovery without tipping your hand. You might have a very good idea of where you wanna go litigation-wise, what kind of questions you wanna ask in the depth, you know, boxing that plaintiff into, the, into your trap, so to speak. Uh, and if you file a 3211 out of the gate because you're just a little too antsy to get rid of the case, that could blow up your whole strategy later on. So there is a cost-benefit analysis here and weighing your options is actually rather important. So I mentioned earlier, we'll go into the individual grounds for dismissal here. Uh, A1, documentary evidence, defense based on documentary evidence. Uh, can't just be any old paper, has to utterly refute the plaintiff's allegations, leaving no triable issues, there's that language again, uh, and conclusively establishing a defense as a matter of law. Uh, the documentary evidence has to be unambiguous, authentic, and undeniable. Uh, an affidavit alone is not sufficient, that's what you'll see in support of a lot of these motions but you can use an affidavit to authenticate documents submitted with it. And when we're talking about uh, unambiguous, authentic, and undeniable, you're talking about um, court orders or uh, even um, contracts, transactions outside of court, uh, things that are you know, very plain on their face, what they stand for and very easy to authenticate. So moving right along. Uh, CPLR 3211A2, lack of subject matter jurisdiction. This is the first of the golden defenses that is never waived. Here you're attacking the court's power to entertain the case, and this is why you can raise it at any time, because if the court literally does not have the power to grant the relief the plaintiff is seeking, why are we here? Uh, so it's usually determined by statutes, constitutions, etc. We're gonna get into a neat little workers' comp sidebar, as we all know I like to do a little later on, uh, exclusive jurisdiction is usually given to another court or another body. Uh, this can't be acquired by consent, stipulation, waiver, or estoppel, uh, and thus you can use it as a basis for dismissal at any time. So you can't say, I consent to this court's subject matter jurisdiction. 
that belongs to the workers' comp board, Kings County Supreme Court can't give you the relief you're seeking. So moving on to uh, A3 and A4, lack of capacity. This is challenging the plaintiff standing to sue. Uh, generally, you have a plaintiff that is uh, trying to stand in the shoes of another without a legal basis to do so. Think of your um, you know, alleged uh, estate administrators or uh, uh, parties of that ilk, uh, CPLR 3211A4. Uh, another action pending. Uh, generally, that other action has to be filed first in order for this defense to matter. Uh, and you got to have the same parties and the same cause of action. Uh, A5, prior proceedings. Uh, so there's no second bite at the apple when a case and a cause of action have already been litigated or settled. Uh, this is where we're coming into the race judicata and collateral estoppel issues again. Uh, if you have a prior R reward, uh, a discharge in bankruptcy, release, payment, et cetera, uh, that finding is going to stand and you're going to be able to pursue a dismissal on that ground. Uh, it also permits one of our biggest defenses and one of the biggest reasons cases get kicked out of uh, the Supreme Courts in New York, and that is the statute of limitations. This is the particular subsection you would raise that defense under. Uh, and just to touch on race judicata, which we've mentioned a couple times now, uh, there must be a prior ruling uh, that was on the merits after full adjudication of the issue. <clears throat> A6 and A7. Uh, A6 is an improper counterclaim. Uh, this is going to be raised by the plaintiff. Say the defendant fires back just all kinds of counterclaims in their answer, just swinging for the fences, seeing whatever sticks here. Um, the plaintiff can actually seek under 3211 to have those uh, counterclaims dismissed. Uh, this does not apply to personal jurisdiction or improper extra jurisdictional service, however. Uh, A7, failure to state a claim. So this is whether a claim even exists. You're asking the court or the judge to pour over the facts of this case a little early on to see if what's being alleged in the complaint is the causes of action even have a ground to stand upon. Uh, again, we're going to be taking all factional allegations as true, uh, and the court is going to be drawing all reasonable inferences from those allegations. So this is a very high burden. Whatever the plaintiff alleges is essentially correct for the purposes of this decision. Uh, this is never waived, but again, we don't have that nice little race judicata effect uh, unless the court evokes, invokes 3211C, which allows them to treat the 3211 motion as a motion for summary judgment, uh, or unless there's documentary evidence uh, supporting this or a prior dismissal. So let's get into the workers' compensation sidebar. Uh, so here's a common scenario, uh, and it's actually come up three times in the past month for me alone. Uh, medical treatment bills from a comp claim somehow end up in no-fault court in one of the various uh, civil courts in the city of New York. So something to keep in mind here, the Workers' Compensation Board has exclusive jurisdiction. This includes uh, overpayment to providers for medical treatment bills. Uh, and a civil court is literally without power to grant the plaintiff the relief they're seeking when they file that complaint. Now, granted, there may be a uh, stay of litigation in the civil court pending proof that there's an ongoing comp claim or that the bills were resolved in favor of the carrier, something of that nature. Um, but the Kings County Civil, well, not Kings County, any civil court cannot actually give the plaintiff the relief thereafter. And the plaintiff in these cases is going to be a medical provider uh, assignee, right? There's a claimant that gets injured, uh, they get treatment, uh, they assign their right to um, get paid for that treatment to the medical provider, 
uh, and then the provider files in civil court because they don't know any better. Uh, somebody in the billing office is not doing their due diligence and they send it out to a debt collection attorney instead of filing a request with the board. Uh, and that's how we end up with our workers' comp carriers getting hauled into civil court uh, against their will. Um, something else to keep in mind, no fault coverage is uh, inapplicable if there is no motor vehicle accident. That's kind of a duh situation, um, but it happens more often than you would think. Again, there's just some unpaid bills kicking around from three or four years ago, and under no fault coverage, you're dealing with the six-year breach of contract statute of limitations. So you'll have these cases resurrected from the grave six years later where a medical provider goes, oh, I never got paid for this and just does what they always do. Uh, and this happens very frequently to comp carriers. Um, something else you can invoke here though, other than um, just the lack of subject matter jurisdiction are the defenses based on documentary evidence. So here you might upload your C3, uh, provided you redact confidential personal identifiers, of course, uh, but even more persuasive is going to be if you have a C4.0, a doctor's initial report, or the C4.2, doctor's progress report, in connection with the same dates of service at issue in the complaint, that's kind of your uh, silver bullet. That's going to be the one that kills the case on the spot. That's perfect documentary evidence. Uh, and failure to state a cause of action. Uh, this goes back to no-fault coverage being inapplicable. How are you entitled to reimbursement under Article 51 of the insurance law if there wasn't a motor vehicle accident? So. Uh, those are three defenses that come up very frequently in that scenario. So jumping back into our individual grounds for dismissal, lack of personal jurisdiction, uh, where is this going to be raised, uh, validity of service, identity of the party, uh, court's power to haul that person into court. This is where you're getting into issues of long-arm jurisdiction, dragging another, uh, dragging another defendant from across state lines into your state court. Um, this obje the objection to service is waived if it's not raised in an answer or a motion. So this has got to be done in your first response of pleading. Uh, if it's raised in an answer, the defendant has 30 days to make their motion or it's waived. Uh, and a counterclaim automatically waives the personal jurisdiction objection. And if you think about it, that only makes sense because you're now as the defendant asking the court for relief and thereby saying this court can grant me what I'm asking for and you're consenting to their jurisdiction over you thereby. All right, uh, CPLR A9 and A10, flawed out-of-state service under CPLR 314 or 315. This is basically a repeat of CPLR A8. Uh, the plaintiff has to produce proof of service in response to this defense. Uh, A10, failure to join a necessary party. This is the last of our uh, non-waivable defenses. Um, a party's absence preventing full adjudication is going to be the trigger here. Someone whose interests are going to be at, uh, adversely affected, that should properly be a party to the case. Uh, it can't be waived, but the party has to be necessary such that litigation cannot proceed in their absence. Uh, and this can have a couple different outcomes. You can get dismissal under 3211 uh, or more commonly joinder, that uh, necessary party is going to get dragged into the case. And for our last one under CPLR 3211A, uh, A11, immunity for voluntary nonprofit officers. So why is this a thing? Uh, the legislature wants to encourage voluntary participation from citizens. So you want to uh, volunteer your time for the local school, school board, but are concerned about getting sued in that capacity. Well, the legislature wants a little bit of a protection for you there. 
there's a presumption of non-liability unless the plaintiff can show uh, abuse of that position. I don't know how you're abusing your power as a member of the school board, but I guess it happens, uh, or acts inconsistent with public good. Uh, it must be sought via a motion to dismiss immediately. It is a nullity subject to a motion to strike if it's raised as an affirmative defense in an answer. So this is one that's a little different than the other defenses under 3211. We can't raise it as a defense in our answer and go for summary judgment on the issue later. You gotta come out of the gate swinging on this particular defense. So uh, before we conclude, just some uh, other considerations. Uh, you're only allowed one 3211 motion, uh, but non-waivable defenses can be raised in a motion for summary judgment later. Uh, once again, that's our lack of subject matter jurisdiction, failure to state a cause of action, or failure, failure to join a necessary party. Uh, and going back to that second bite at the apple here, uh, unless there is a dismissal based on voluntary discontinuance, uh, failure to obtain personal jurisdiction of a defendant, uh, dismissal for failure to prosecute, or final judgment on the merits, uh, under CPLR 205A, there's a six-month grace period where the plaintiff can bring a new action provided that action would have been timely uh, at the time the prior action was commenced. So uh, if they cure the defect in service is a perfect example. It was dismissed for lack of personal jurisdiction because service process was improper. Well, if you affect proper service within the statute of limitations, you can bring that case again, even if the prior one was kicked under CPLR 3211. So now we'll go check if there are any questions on this topic before we conclude. And I am not seeing any questions. So I hope you will join us next month, uh, September 14th. That's gonna be pre-answer motion practice in New Jersey. Uh, and it is great to be back live and in the studio, people. We're coming out the other side. See everyone next month, thanks.